Greetings. This is Phil St. Romain. Thank you for tuning in to my Awaken podcast channel. This message is entitled, When Good Things Happen to Bad People. It's taken from a chapter of my book on the resurrection of Jesus. The book is entitled, Jesus Alive in Our Lives. You can find the book on sale in paper and electronic formats through my website, shalomplace.com. That's S-H-A-L-O-M-P-L-A-C-E dot com. And now, our podcast message. A prevailing myth held by many today has it that good, clean living will bring health, prosperity, and the respect of others. The origins of this myth probably derive from much of life experience, for there is considerable data in support of this assumption. If nothing else, modern psychology has taught us that our actions, thoughts, and feelings are all related. It follows that healthy thinking and clean living go hand in hand. This myth might also be, in part, an expression of our own hope that efforts to live ethically will be rewarded. Very often it is much more difficult to be honest, responsible, and charitable than to be crooked, lazy, and selfish, and we all hope that our effort to do what is right won't go unrewarded. The Hebrew Scriptures, or Old Testament, very often seems to be in complete accord with what we shall call here the prosperity myth. God's promises are couched in terms of prosperity. The patriarchs are held out as models of the good life, and we are assured that obedience to the law, or doing the right things, will bring long days and the fullness of living. The fact that Jews sustained this belief for thousands of years is additional evidence of the credibility of the prosperity myth, for Orthodox Jews did not hope for a heavenly life after death. Had the myth gone completely against the grain of life experience, Judaism would have been a different religion, with different hopes and beliefs. As we all know, however, the prosperity myth does not speak to the totality of life experiences. In fact, it ignores many disturbing problems. What about those born with physical or mental defects? What about those who work hard and live clean? but seem to never find their way out of poverty and misfortune? What about debilitating sicknesses that strike people in the prime of their lives? Although healthy-mindedness can reduce susceptibility to many illnesses, we are never completely invulnerable to some kind of virus or accident. Then there is death. Does the prosperity myth remain relevant in the face of death? Is the thought that we shall leave the world a better place for our children and our work completely consoling? Finally, the most serious challenge to the prosperity myth comes from those who prosper but who live evil lives and experience few adverse consequences in this life. Jews were aware of all these challenges to the prosperity myth and they faced each one bravely attempting to explain how it might be properly understood. Sickness, suffering, and death were problems, to be sure, but were these not part of the punishment we brought on ourselves as a consequence of the fall in Eden? 
Rather than curse God for suffering, the faithful Jew might have instead thanked God that things were not worse. If a good person suffered or failed to achieve prosperity, this was an injustice. But very often the Jews regarded suffering as a tool used by God to bring about repentance and reconciliation. Suffering did not necessarily negate all avenues for hope. Death was another matter. No possibility for reincarnation was entertained, and not until Greek influences gave rise to Hellenistic Judaism in about the 4th century BC did the Hebrews hope for an afterlife. The dead were thought to go to Sheol, a realm of shadows and inactivity. If this all seems a poor metaphysical system, one deeply riddled with existential holes, just remember that it's worked for almost 4,000 years. Life itself to a Jew was considered a great, unearned blessing. One simply had to take the bad with the good. Jewish thinkers had extreme difficulty reconciling the prosperity of the wicked with the justice of God, however. The initial hope that the unjust would receive their recompense in this life proved time and time again, and generation after generation, to be unrealized. I would like to debate a point of justice with you, Jeremiah boldly challenged God, Jeremiah 12, verses 1 through 3. Why is it that the wicked live so prosperously? Why do scoundrels enjoy peace? You plant them, they take root and flourish, and even bear fruit. Drag them off like sheep for the slaughterhouse, he pleads in behalf of the prosperity myth. Earlier in Jewish history, the psalmist had raised the same questions in Psalm 94, going further than Jeremiah, by pointing out that some of these people were quite arrogant in their wickedness, quote, boasting and asserting themselves, murdering and massacring widows, orphans, and guests. The psalmist reconciled this injustice by holding that, quote, God will pay them back for all their sins and will silence their wickedness, close quotes. Fine words, but when, we might ask, will God pay them back for their sins? The wicked continue to prosper generation after generation, suffering occasional setbacks, but always seeming to recover and entrench themselves more deeply in human history. They still, to this very day, generate terrorism for the express purpose of disrupting social order. They murder the innocent. They oppress the poor. They deprive human beings of the freedoms written into the laws of our nature. Most of them get away with it unpunished, causing us to ask if our hope for justice is not completely unrealistic in the first place. The Challenge of Job Nowhere have questions concerning the justice of God been focused and discussed more comprehensively than in the Old Testament book of Job. A literary masterpiece, the work portrays a good and holy man, Job, nonetheless suffering infirmity and the complete loss of what had once been a prosperous business and a large healthy family. Job has no control over this situation. He could have done nothing to prevent it. 
Initially, like a good Jew, he rises to the occasion, blessing God who is given, but now has chosen to take away. Eventually, he begins lamenting the day he was born and everything that followed thereafter. The appearance of a few friends to accuse him of sin is no consolation at all, only convincing Job even more of his innocence and of the inadequacy of the prosperity myth. Job's friends assume the role as defendants of the prosperity myth, insisting that he must have offended God in some manner, or else he would not be suffering as he is. Even his wife hounds him to lay bare his hidden sin, that her life too might be restored to its former happiness. Suffering so intensely that he can scarcely think at all, Job resists the accusations of wife and friends, holding God alone responsible for what happened to him, ever careful to acknowledge God's right to do as he pleases with his creatures. Job notes, however, the contrast between his situation and the prosperity of the wicked, wondering aloud what this says about the justice of God. If God wants people to show up the wicked with good example and charity, then why has God punished a just and holy man like me? Seems to be his argument. God is thus challenged to explain himself, or else suffer an embarrassing setback insofar as respect for his justice and mercy is concerned. Reading through chapters 38 to 42 of the book of Job, we might, with Job, feel overwhelmed by God's response and the power of God and the irrelevancy of what God says. The closest God comes to replying to Job's questions is, you really want to reverse my judgment and put me in the wrong to put yourself in the right? There's not even a remote semblance of ethical principle in this answer. God is begging the question at best. Another boasting of his power follows, all of which reduces Job to a state of humble impotence. He lays his hand over his mouth, refusing to say more. God then restores Job to health and prosperity, thus reinstating himself as the all-powerful judge and rewarder of the good. While the book of Job provides us with an exhaustive reflection on the nature of evil and the justice of God, its conclusions leave much unsaid. Certainly, we can appreciate the restoration of Job's health and prosperity, but there are millions living today who have not experienced such restitution and will never do so in this world. Also, we've learned nothing new about God's response to the prosperity of the wicked, except that God knows all about it and has lots of power to do something about it if he so decides. But why doesn't he? It is against the backdrop of Job's challenge that we can best appreciate the significance of the resurrection of Jesus toward advancing the cause of God's justice. The Church interpreted the resurrection to conclusively demonstrate the existence of life after death. Furthermore, Jesus taught that God will judge all people on the basis of the kind of life they have lived. The good will receive the war they have already begun to experience in their lives, and the evil will be allowed to experience the fullness of the misery they have brought upon others 
and written into their own being. In a sense, the prosperity myth is vindicated by the resurrection, so long as its promises are extended from this life into the hereafter. No one is completely good or bad, as we know, and the simplistic model of judgment described in the Gospels raises many questions about those areas of gray in all our lives. This is not the place for reflection on those issues, however. Nor are we interested here in speculating on whether or not God's judgment is perceived at the moment of death or in some later period with all of humanity present. We do want to note the implication that there is something in all of us that is immortal and that will, after death, be without any of the props and supports that keeps us distanced from God during our time on earth. Distinguishing between the good and bad among us will be God's task, and we trust that God will administer justice and wisdom and equity, and that God is also merciful. Had Job known of the resurrection, he might have borne his sufferings more patiently. Had he known of the risen Jesus, who had previously been the crucified Jesus, tortured in innocence just as he, Job, had been, Job might have dismissed his self-righteous friends in complete peace of mind. The justice Job hungered for was finally assured in the resurrection. The significance of this belief to individuals and societies can hardly be exaggerated. For the individual, the prospect of immortality and judgment is a sobering thought. Only an atheist, it would seem, could shake free from the ethical imperatives that follow from this perspective. Confronted with the possibility of an eventual call to accountability, the individual is challenged to a purity of behavior, allowing for none of the usual rationalizations of the unethical. Everybody does it, and it's okay, as long as you don't get caught, are now seen as empty slogans. You will get caught, Christianity promises, and if everybody has been unethical, then everybody will get caught. The prospect of judgment is a call to live before God rather than in comparison with others, aligning our behavior with the intentions of God rather than with mere cultural whims and fads. There can be little doubt that this Christian doctrine of judgment has helped to make people a little more honest and better behaved than they would have otherwise been compelled to be. From the foregoing, it might seem that judgment works only as a negative reinforcement, sort of like the threat of some kind of punishment for small children. This is only half the doctrine, however. Certainly the fear of eternal punishment generated by the prospect of judgment, has been exploited by ministers through the ages. But many people are not frightened by this anymore. As Lawrence Kohlberg has demonstrated in his research, the fear of punishment is a very early level of moral development. It's comforting to know that Christianity can address people at such a basic level of morality, but there is much more on the positive side for those who have moved along in their growth. God's judgment, we might recognize, is not an act that God bestows for or against us. Rather, judgment is determined by our response to God. 
Our earthly life is, in this perspective, an opportunity to write in the law of our being the values of God or the values of self-indulgence. When, at the end of our days, we stand before God stripped of all our defense mechanisms and false pretenses, we will be either drawn toward Him or else feel repulsed by God's love. It is not so much that God will reject those who have been evil. It is they who will not be able to accept God in God's revealed splendor. Like feeble seedlings in highly fertilized soil, they will be shriveled up, their hardened hearts closed to the power of the love that reaches out to embrace them. Those who have loved God and their fellow human beings, on the other hand, will have become acclimated, as it were, to the richness of the divine ground. They will burst forth in a passionate embrace of the God who has embraced them through their lives, nurturing them unto the fullness of their spiritual individuality. The Christian doctrine of judgment stresses the importance of the small decisions we make in addition to the very few large ones we struggle with from time to time. Those who are great in the little things will be great in the larger things, said Jesus. If you want to know what you think of God and his cause, look at the decisions you make every day, and especially the criteria you employ when making them. We write the law of our being through the small decisions we make each day. That our decisions can assume eternal significance is a uniquely Christian contribution stemming from reflection on the meaning of the resurrection of Jesus. The dignity thus conferred on decision-making, a distinctly human activity, should pervade the life of anyone who takes the prospect of divine judgment seriously. This is the positive side of the doctrine of judgment, an emphasis that has the potential of conferring meaning on even the most mundane of decisions we make every day. A few questions for reflection. What thoughts and feelings have been awakened in you from this podcast? Also, how do you feel about the prosperity of the wicked? How do you feel about the prospect of being judged by God one day, of giving an accounting of your life? How does the resurrection of Jesus confer meaning in the decisions you make each day?